All right, so here we go. Here's the brief Bible study because I committed to ending early and we're going to try to do it. We're in James chapter 2 right now. Thank you, sir. James chapter 2. And last week we covered verses 1 through 9 where we covered the subject of impartiality. And I love that text. It's so simple, but it's a truth that we need to know as Christians where he says, don't be like the rest of the world when into your assembly, into the church comes a person, you treat them with love and respect and treat them as equals, whether they're rich or whether they're poor. And that principle applies to everyone that would include what, no matter what their skin color is, no matter where they're from. It says you're supposed to treat the rich man and the poor man who walks in in vile raiment exactly the same. And I think I mixed up my terms last week where I was saying impartial and describing that as bad, but impartial is good, to be partial is bad. That means you're showing prejudice. So hopefully, I didn't confuse anyone even though I said it wrong. Hopefully you got the point is we're not supposed to be prejudiced. We're supposed to love everyone and treat them the same. And that was given again with the backdrop of to the 12 tribes of Israel that were scattered abroad from their persecution. And he tells them in verses 6 and 7 not to despise or look down on the poor. And remember, it's the rich people who are oppressing you. Remember, it's often the rich people who are blaspheming the name of God. So he's saying to them in their trials, don't look and think, wow, if I treat this rich person with favoritism, maybe they can return the favor and I can be delivered from persecution. No, we look to God to fulfill our needs. We look to God to provide for us financially and we look to God to deliver us from our oppression, not wicked men who do not know God, though we should love and welcome the rich people exactly the same as we would any one else. That's what it means to not be a respecter of persons. As verse number one says, we're not supposed to have the faith of Christ with the respect of persons. To have respect of persons doesn't mean we respect them in a good way. It's used in a phrase we looked last week 11 different times in the Bible to mean you're showing favoritism or partiality. So the text in the scripture says there is no respect of persons with God. It's simply saying God doesn't treat people with partiality or with prejudice and neither should we. So let's pick it up in verse number six for the thought that we covered last week carries right into the simple thought we'll cover this week which is that the text tells us that we are convinced of the law as transgressors. Verse number six. But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by the which ye are called? If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. Okay, so he transitions from talking about you're supposed to love everyone the same, treat them the same, to saying if you don't do that, you are actually breaking the law of God. Remember, he's writing to saved Jews, but to Jews nonetheless who are extremely familiar with the Old Testament law, the moral code, and the Ten Commandments. Now he transitions to make the point that when we do sin, we are breaking the law of God, and that makes us guilty in the eyes of God. It begins with that one example of not loving your neighbor as yourself, because 
okay, so if a rich man comes into the church and you treat him well, and then a poor person comes in and you treat them with contempt, you are not loving that poor person who is your neighbor the same as you would love yourself. And we covered some of these verses last time, but any verses that are away from where we're actually turned to will be printed in your handout. So if you'd like, you can read along. Jason, would you read the first two there, Deuteronomy 6, 5 and Leviticus 19, 17 and 18? All right, and so then last week we read Matthew 22, 36 through 40, where someone comes to Jesus and he says, what is the greatest commandment of the law? What is the great commandment? And Jesus laid out these two specific things. The one we read out of Deuteronomy, where they were commanded, love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And then the second one Jesus points to, which he says is like unto it, is the one out of Leviticus 19, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets, which was all of the Old Testament, which is all of the scripture they were familiar with up until that time. And Jesus breaks it down so simply that if we truly were perfectly loving God with all our heart, mind, and soul at all times, and we're perfectly loving our neighbor as ourself at all times, we would all be sinless. For every sin breaks into those categories. When you sin against people in any way, you're sinning against them, failing to love them as much as you love yourself. When we disobey any of God's laws, we're not loving Him with all of our heart, mind, and soul. As the Bible says, we are supposed to do. Let's flip over to Romans chapter 13, if you would like to look there with me. We have been on this subject a lot recently, off and on, and Wednesday night kind of complimenting the Sunday morning messages where we're talking about the law and how the purpose of the law was to teach us that we are sinners. So hopefully the Lord is in that and it's a theme that he's bringing up to get this truth grounded in our mind that we understand the scripture and also that we do not drift into legalism. There are two great aspects of error that the church is always going to one side or the other. The one is liberalism or meaning being too loose with the truth, not caring about the truth. The other one is legalism which is we care about the truth, but we fail to be loving. So we can drift too far to being legalistic in holding on to things that we're proud about in keeping rules that maybe the Bible says or maybe it doesn't, but we judge other people if they're not living up to us. That's legalism. Liberalism is when we say, oh, we love people the same, but we fail to preach the truth and stand up for the truth. And one of the most popular movements in recent times that's seen a resurgence, though it's not really new, for Paul dealt with it almost the entire book of Galatians, is a Hebrew roots movement. We need to go back to the law. We need to go back to the Old Testament. We need to go back to tradition and keeping of feast days and all of these things. And that's what we need to go back to. 
Now, you could do some things like studying that culture or even attending a feast day to see what it was like. But if we're teaching that that's the right way to do it, that's the better way to do it, or you have to do it that way, then we are wrong. For the New Testament says we are set free from the law. And when we say the law, there's two different things we're talking about. One is the moral law, which is the Ten Commandments. God will always feel the same way about sin that he hates. So when God says it's an abomination, I hate it, he's always going to feel that way. The other one was the ceremonial law, which is all of those come and bring an animal for sacrifice. You can't wear a shirt that's of mixed fibers. Um, give me another example. Here's how you handle a bird's nest. And if you have leprosy, go to the priest, okay? The Jews were commanded to keep that, but in the New Testament, Paul said, that was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And now that Christ has come, we're no longer under the schoolmaster. So the law taught Israel and all the world and all of history after Israel that, hey, if you want to earn your way to God, you're not going to be able to do it. Here's my law, and the law crushed them. The law broke their backs. Peter said to the Jews, why are you trying to get Gentiles who are newly saved to keep the law of the Old Testament when even your forefathers could not keep the law? I think the phrase was, they could not bear it. And that's in Acts 15, if I'm remembering. Read that when you get home. And they're going back and forth between the law. And at some place in there, I believe it's Peter that says, your fathers were not even able to bear it. Romans chapter 13 and verse number 8. Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Here he says, if you love someone, you are fulfilling the law. Verse 9. For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, Namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So you see what he's saying? It's another place where they're saying the exact same thing. If there was any direct command given from God, it's fulfilled in loving God and loving your neighbor. And here, the sins that he lists as adultery, killing, stealing, bearing false witness, coveting, those are all sins you commit against God, but you're, you're offending God while you're sinning against people. Read them again. Every single one of those sins impacts somebody else. So he's saying if you want to fulfill the law of God, then love people. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that's what James is saying. Let's go back to James chapter 2 and let's hammer through about these next uh, five or six verses and pull some thoughts out of them. Verse number 9. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. So verse 8 said, if you want to fulfill the royal law according to scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you fail to do that, if you respect persons, then you are convinced of the law as transgressors. The Greek word therefore convinced simply means rebuked. We are rebuked by the law of God as being a transgressor of the law and as being a sinner if we fail to love our neighbor as ourself. Thus, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3, we won't turn there, but Romans 3, 10 
through 31 deals line by line, verse by verse, about this very subject. We are all sinners. We have all broken the law. But the good news is righteousness did not come by the law. It cannot come by the law. It comes through grace. It comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ in accepting the free gift of salvation. But the great truth that it hammers home is that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Again, the sermon we preached through about the rich young ruler just ties so perfectly to this, for he came and was unwilling to admit that he had sinned. He wanted to know what good thing can I do that I may inherit eternal life? How can I earn my way to heaven? And Jesus said, if you really want to earn your way to heaven, keep the law, don't sin ever. And he said, I've kept all that from my youth up. And then Jesus, wanting to prove to him that he was not as perfect as he thought, said, okay, well, fulfill this then. Love your neighbor as yourself. Sell all your possessions, give them to the poor, and come follow me. And at that point, it was game over. He had to admit he was unwilling to obey what Jesus would say, and he was breaking the law. He was breaking, thou shalt not have any other God before me, for he loved his wealth too much to obey what God was telling him to do. He broke, thou shalt not covet. And if he truly loved his neighbor as much as he loved himself, then when God himself gave him a one-time instruction to sell what you have and give it to the poor, he would have been willing to obey. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I have a few verses sprinkled uh, from throughout Romans chapter 3, printed out here. Verse 19. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. That is the purpose of the law. Every mouth will be stopped. Everyone will have to see they are guilty. And then they can do one of two things. Admit I'm a sinner and I need God. Or in their pride refuse to admit it. Even though they're being convicted in their heart by the law of God that they have sinned. Verse 27. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Okay, we've been over it recently and over it. It's in black and white. We are not justified by the deeds of the law. No one can be saved by the keeping of the law by doing more good than bad. Verse 31. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we establish the law. Paul said the same thing in another place. It's not the law that was a problem. It was my sin that was a problem. The law was a good thing. For when God said, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, it showed me I can't do that. I'm a sinner in need of God's grace, and it led me to salvation. So the law was not the problem, Paul said. My sin was. So the law was a good thing, even though the law condemned me. For if I had not seen the law, then I wouldn't have known that I was condemned and needed to repent and to be saved. Number one, if we have respect of persons, we break the law. That's just a simple violation of one thing that God said do not do, but it was breaking the law. It's How did it break it? Not loving your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced of the law, meaning we are rebuked of the law as a transgressor. We hold our record and our actions up against the law, and the law, which are the commands of God, says to us, transgressor, guilty, 
And what we'll see, the point that he makes going through this, is that it's not just a one-time deal. We're either innocent or guilty. We're either perfect or not perfect. People commit some terrible crimes, and they have to register for the rest of their life as a certain type of offender. They're branded as that, so that other people can be warned. And when we break the law of God, the law says to us and rebukes us, transgressor, guilty, Lawbreaker, And there's nothing we can do in our flesh to change that. Number one, if we have respect of persons, we break the law. Number two, if we break the law at all, we are guilty of all. Verse 10 is perhaps one of the most convicting, astounding verses in all the Bible. And if it weren't for Jesus dying on the cross, it would be one of the most hopeless verses in the Bible. For whosoever shall keep the whole law... And yet offend in one point, he is guilty of... What's the next word? All. He is guilty of all. We'll see as the verses go on, he's talking about what God has commanded. That's the law of God. He starts to list some of the Ten Commandments. And the point that he goes on to make is that if we have broken the law of God, we are then classified and defined as a lawbreaker of God, guilty of all of it. I've told this a hundred times, but I'll never forget being with my dad while he was trying to witness to a lady on a Saturday afternoon at an apartment complex, going out, inviting people to church. And he gave the verses from Romans. Number one of the gospel, the four points on the Romans road is all, we are sinners. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So do you think you've sinned? Do you admit you're a sinner? And she said, well, I've sinned, but I'm not a sinner. In other words, I may have broken up, you know, failed and tripped up a couple of times, but it wasn't bad enough or frequent enough to classify me as those other sinners who are guilty before God. And if you've heard me tell the story, you know that then he said, well, if you stood before the judge and you said, look, Mr. Judge, you're a nice, fair guy. And I just want you to know, I know I got really mad and killed those two people, but I never killed anybody else besides those two. Is it really fair to say I'm a murderer, even though I murdered someone? No. And that's the point James is making is if we have broken the law and we are guilty, then we're guilty. And there's nothing we can do about it. I'm going to read you a whole bunch of bullet points, okay, to follow the train of the point that James is making. So, not all sin is equal in depravity or consequence. The Bible says that some sin is against nature. Some sin by the laws of God and of man will bring a harsher response of judgment upon us than others. Okay, you may be convicted of crossing the street at the wrong place and pay a ticket, but God or man will not come down on you as hard or judge you as hard, at least initially, as if you had murdered someone. Okay? Not all sin is equal in depravity or consequence, but all sin makes us a lawbreaker. If you've broken the law once, God judges us as a lawbreaker. Okay, so all lawbreakers are sinners. That's what we're talking about. Breaking the law is breaking God's command and becoming a sinner. All sinners are guilty. Everyone who is guilty is lost. All sin and any sin we ever commit is enough to condemn us in the eyes of God. All have sinned and all that have sinned 
are sinners, classified by God and by the legal record as a sinner, and all sinners are lost and headed for eternal judgment in the lake of fire. Of course, with the caveat that if we are saved, then when we stand before God, our record will not be what judges us. It will be the perfect righteousness of Christ that will be imputed to our account and all of our sins that are written out, Christ's record will cover ours like whiteout and they will be completely gone. But apart from Christ, in our flesh, the train follows all the way down. Sin equals lawbreaker. Lawbreaker equals sinner. Sinner equals guilty. Guilty equals lost. Any sin at all is enough to classify us that way for God's standard is perfection. I have a cousin who bowled a perfect game one time. He bowls professionally. It's like saying in bowling, there's either perfect or there's not perfect. If the standard was to win, you had to be a bowl a perfect game. There's perfect and then there's not perfection. And God says there's only two ways that we are judged when we're in our flesh. Either as perfect or as a lawbreaker. Any sin. If we offended in one point, we're guilty of all. If we break the command that said thou shalt not lie, we are still guilty of being a lawbreaker. And as thence we will be judged as if we had broken every single law that there was to break, including the murder and all of the other terrible sins that we could commit. Number three, trying to earn heaven is futile. Look at this verse. Realize James 2.10 says if we break, keep the law perfectly, but one time we break it one place, we're guilty as if we had committed every sin there is to commit. Tell me how are we going to do more good than bad to pay for every horrible crime that had ever been committed by any sinner anywhere. That's the task we would have to look at. Even people who will doubt. And look, so skeptics bring it up, and sometimes I struggle with it too, to say, well, how could God who really loves people send them to hell forever? Okay, and that's something we wrestle with too. We know, But we know the truth. We know what the Bible teaches. We know that God's good. We know that He gives light. And we know that no matter what it looks like, God's always good, and He's always just when He judges. But putting that aside, even those people who will say, I don't believe in a hell like that. That doesn't sound fair. They will believe that a person like Hitler is going to hell or that a child abuser is going to hell. Charles Manson, who was in California famously and was part of these horrible murders against people, including a woman who was with child and just terrible things that he led other people to do. I'll never forget seeing a little clip of an interview where someone had interviewed him in prison for he got a life sentence in prison rather than the death penalty, which according to the law of God would be the way to do it. God said after the flood, after the Old Testament law, or I'm sorry, before there ever was an Old Testament codified law, God said, if you shed man's blood, by man shall your blood be shed. Not vigilantism, but the government carrying it out before two or three witnesses establishing the matter. God established that human life is so precious that when someone takes an innocent human life, they should justly have their life be taken by the authorities. But he got, Charles Manson got life imprisonment. And at some point, someone got permission or to interview him. And he's sitting behind the glass on a phone. And the other person's on the glass with a camera in there. And the person asked him, do you feel guilty about the things you did? 
And he got visibly agitated and squirmed and sat up and he said, guilty. He said, I don't feel guilty about anything. He said, if something would would make me feel guilty, then I wouldn't have done it. I don't feel guilty. Even his body language betrayed his words for he knew in his mind and in his heart it was wrong to kill innocent people, to kill a woman with child and to lead other people to do those things. He knew that he was wrong. He knew that he had violated natural law and God's law, but yet he he pushed against it and said, I don't feel guilty. Listen, Charles Manson, imagine if you were guilty of all of his sins and Hitler's sins and any terrible sin. Well, if we're not in Christ on judgment day, we will be judged as guilty of every single one of those sins. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. I would give up if it were not for Christ. I know in my flesh, I'm not good enough to overcome being guilty of all. And I know that I've broken his law. Martin Luther began penance where he he wanted to show he was sorry for his sins and he walked up and down the steps on his knees till they were bleeding in a movement of flagellant monks in the 14th century where they would literally whip their own skin till it would break and they would bleed. They were trying to show they were sorry. They were trying in a way to pay for their own sins. Some starved themselves. Some took vows of poverty. But Jason, if we could sing that song again sometime soon, one of my favorite songs that Jason ever sang addresses that type of thing. And it says, if I were to take all the money in the world and sell it and give it to a poor person, if I were to do all the good works I could ever do, it wouldn't be enough to pay for one drop of blood that Jesus shed or one splinter of the cross on which He died. Uh, Andrew, would you look up Romans 11 and read out, read me two verses from there in just a minute? I'm moving to close because we're going to stuff those bags. I'm going to try to wrap this up really quick. Uh, a few verses out of our handout. Galatians 5.4 Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law. You are fallen from grace. You can't be justified by the law. That's the point. Galatians 2.21 I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness is come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Titus 3.5 Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. Ephesians 2.8 and 9 For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, and not of works, lest any man should boast. Would you read Romans 11.5 and 6? Even so then, at this present time, also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then there is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if, but if it be works, then it is also no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. Amen. So it's saying works and grace are different. If you're going to be saved by grace, 
you can't be saved by works. If you're trying to get saved by works, you're discounting the grace of God. And I don't want to chase rabbit trails, but I said this recently, the Calvinists will say, that's synergism, that's synergy. If you're saying that you're saved by any other means than God irresistibly gracing you, which basically means God comes and saves you with you having no say at all, because you're not capable to say yes. Irresistible grace is I'm kidnapping you to heaven whether you like it or not. And they'll say, well, if you don't agree that that's the way we get saved, the only other argument is you're working with God in synergy and earning your way to heaven. If you say, yes, Jesus, I accept you, and you think that he's giving you salvation because you accepted it, then you're claiming works. But the problem with that is the Bible says works and grace are two different things. And no one can reasonably say, me drowning on my way to hell, knowing there's nothing I could ever do but saying, please God save me, I throw myself on your mercies. That's not a good work that I can brag about. I earned my way to heaven because I did that. That's It's a grace, and if it's by grace, it can't be by works, for grace and works are totally different things. Number four, disobeying God makes us law breakers. James 2, verse 10. We just read that several times. So verse 11. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. Do you see what he's saying? What makes us a lawbreaker is the fact that we have disobeyed God. Even if we didn't break all of the things that God said not to do, if we break one of them, we're a disobeyer of God. Someone who broke all of the Ten Commandments is a disobeyer of God. Someone who broke one is a disobeyer of God. And in either which way, we are convinced of the law. What does that mean? Rebuked of the law as a transgressor. What, why is it a sin to do certain things? The movie we watched last fall, Time Changer, addressed that. As the church, we shouldn't say, well, do good to people because that's good. No, we're supposed to say, don't steal because God said don't steal. And God created the universe. God makes the laws. And if we break His laws, we are condemned. If you're young and someone tells you to do something, or your sister gets, uh, or I don't mean to say sister, you know, someone gets a little bossy and tells you, you're not supposed to be doing that. What do you say sometimes? Says who? Who says I can't do that? Who's the boss of me? Well, dad said you don't do it or else he's going to, you know, he's going to whoop you. Okay, then I take that with some weight, you know? But who said don't lie? Who said don't kill? Who said don't steal? God did. And if we disobey God, we are a breaker of the law. There's a principle of divine ownership. We talked about it Sunday in the parable of the vineyard, where the vineyard owner representing God said, is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? God created the planet. God created the people. God created the moral law. And it was not arbitrary, by the way. His laws are right. His laws are just. There's moral law. There's natural law. And when we break the Ten Commandments, it's clear to see that it's wrong. God made those laws because it's right to make those laws. Adam and Eve sinned when they disobeyed God. That was the great sin. Disobeying what God had told them to do. You and I have not lived up to God's holiness. We cannot escape this life innocent of sin or of being a lawbreaker. It's not possible. And remember, like the rich young ruler learned, salvation is on God's terms not on our terms. Romans chapter 1, let me read you some selected verses here from Romans 1. 
And then we'll read number five and we'll be done. Romans 1, this whole passage needs to be dealt with probably often in our day and age. Read it tonight. Romans 1, 20 through the end of the chapter perfectly describes the downward spiral and how people get into horrible sins, but it begins with them seeing God, hearing what God has to say, and saying, no, God, I disobey you. That's what makes us a lawbreaker. That's what leads to sin. Romans 1, and the the verses are noted there. I'm just going to read it straight through, even though it jumps around a little bit. All of this is Romans 1. Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, who changed the truth of God into a lie. And worshipped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Backbiters. It begins to list these sins. And the next one that I've, I've highlighted in bold says, Haters of God. What makes us sinners is that we disobey God. Verse 11 said the whole point is that if we tell a lie, we may be able to say, well, I'm not guilty of adultery or of murder or of theft. Yes, but the same God who said don't kill someone is the same God that said don't lie. That's what makes us guilty of all. What makes us a lawbreaker is disobeying God. Number five, as God has showed us mercy, we are to show others mercy. James 2, 12 and 13, and that's it. So speak ye, and do ye, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. That phrase, the law of liberty, appears in James 1.25 and in James 2.12. It's the only place in the Bible. He doesn't really describe exactly what it means, but probably he's just saying, yes, you're free from Old Testament law. We're in the age of freedom, of liberty, but God still has expectations of us. We're still commanded to not sin and to do what's right, even though we're not under that Old Testament law. For he shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy, and mercy rejoiceth against judgment. Here James is saying something that will be the theme for the rest of the chapter, which I'll get to talk about next week, faith versus works, and what all exactly is he saying, when he's saying if you truly know God, if you're truly not classified as a lawbreaker, but rather as saved, and if you truly have mercy, you will show it by having mercy on other people. Mercy is a characteristic of Christians who have received mercy. And it says, if you show no mercy, you will be judged without mercy. Then he says, mercy rejoices against judgment. That phrase rejoiceth basically means to exalt So it means to triumph over. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And because God's mercy has overcame and triumphed over my judgment, so too mercy should overrule my desire to want to judge others for what they have done wrong.